Now we're going to study God's word. We believe that the Bible is the word of God. And so each week uh, we come to read it and meditate on it and study it because we believe it brings truth and it brings life. Uh, And if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We're going to continue our study of the early Christian community from the book of Acts. And one of the the big overall big picture uh, questions we want to answer is, what is the mission of the Christian community? What's the mission of the church? And what we see in the book of Acts is the Christian community continues the ministry of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth. The Christian community continues the ministry of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth. That sounds great. Now, how do we do that? How does that actually happen? What is the actual ministry of the church? We're going to answer that question this morning. We're going to see it here in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Hear the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This ends the reading of God's word. All men are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. Let's give our attention to it. Uh, Last week, I read a story about a man named Bill, who in the early 1900s went to war and came home and started a career working on Wall Street. And as he rode the roller coaster of Wall Street in life, something tragic happened. He developed a dependency on alcohol. He became an alcoholic. Um, He was on the verge of drinking himself to death when one night one of his friends came over to meet him. And they sat down as they often did, and Bill offered his friend a drink, and his drink said, no, I'm, I'm not drinking tonight. He said, I'm actually sober. And Bill was shocked. He says, why, why are you sober? How did this happen? And he said, well, uh, a couple, two months earlier, uh, this man had been on trial, and the judge was about to give his sentence And two men were in the courtroom with him, and they said, "Uh, please don't send this man. Uh, Let us take him and give him a simple uh, idea of religion, and let us emphasize some practical steps for him. We think we could help him. We think we can help him. And so the judge let them do that. And so uh, for months, this man uh, spent time uh, with these men uh, learning about God, learning about how to have a relationship with God, and implementing some very practical steps in his life. He told Bill about that. And for Bill's, the first time, Bill could see hope. He could see that his life could change. Uh, well, Bill's alcoholism eventually sent him into the hospital. And while he was there in the hospital bed, he finally surrendered his life to God. And he uh, sat down with his friend and he, he ruthlessly uh, made a list of all of his wrongdoings. He made a list of, of all the people that had wronged him. He sought to forgive those people and to make amends with them. And as he forgave and as he made amends, he could experience God's joy and peace coming into his life. 
Uh, He was more and more uh, selfless and left self-centered. And he thought to himself, I bet there's alcoholics everywhere that could use this program. And so Bill created Alcoholics Anonymous after that to help alcoholics find God and to find freedom from their alcoholism. And from that spurred other addiction recovery programs, including uh, Celebrate Recovery, which is a Christ-centered recovery program. And all of them are founded on uh, on a very simple idea and very simple practices. And what they have found is, is that if you practice these very simple, ordinary, spiritual practices, that God will use them in extraordinary ways to bring spiritual life. And when we look at this passage this morning, we see something uh, very similar. We see the early church doing some very simple spiritual practices, very ordinary, common spiritual practices, but God uses them to bring extraordinary spiritual life. And so this morning, that's what I want you to see. I want you to see that as we engage in these ordinary spiritual practices that the disciples used, then God will use them to bring spiritual life to us. That is the ministry of the church. Okay? So we're going to look at two things. The ordinary practices of spiritual life and the extraordinary signs of spiritual life. Kids, listen for a story about a map. Listen for a story about a map. Because the first thing we see is that uh, the early church uses these ordinary practices of spiritual life. Uh, Look at verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Okay? So to devote yourself to something means to wholly and completely give yourself to it. To wholly and completely give yourself to it. They they wholly and completely gave themselves to the fellowship. Uh, That word there is koinonia. It was the Christian community. It was all the people who were united together through the Holy Spirit. Uh, They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That was probably the Lord's Supper and prayer meetings where they would commune with God together. So through the Holy Spirit, they had union with God, with God and with each other. And they had communion with God and with each other. And God used these ordinary practices to bring spiritual life. And they're super valuable. And I could preach a sermon over each one of those. But I'm not going to do that today. Today, I really want to hone in on the fourth devotion, which was their devotion to the apostles' teachings. Because I think it's the devotion to the apostles' teachings that shaped everything else we see in this passage. So who were the apostles? Uh, The apostles were the 12 men minus Judah who spent three years living with Jesus from the time of his baptism until his ascension. They heard his teaching. They saw his miracles. They met the resurrected Jesus. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, it was this group of men that he gave the unique responsibility and authority to continue his ministry. Uh, You see this on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls, and then who is it that stands up to explain what is happening when everybody's looking around going, what what is happening here? The text says that Peter and the 11 stood up, and and Peter preached the gospel to explain those miraculous events. Uh, Here in this passage, it talks about the signs and wonders that the apostles did. These signs and wonders bore witness to their power and authority. 
But notice they didn't devote themselves to the signs and wonders. What did they devote themselves to? The teaching. And over and over again, you see these miraculous things happening in the book of Acts. But after they happen, what happens? There's teaching. Right? So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, what did they teach? They taught the gospel. They taught what Peter Peter preached in Acts 2, which we studied last week. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God defeated Satan's sin and death so that we could be saved from our sin and from the miseries of this world. And everyone who comes to Jesus in faith and repentance can be saved and brought into his kingdom. Jesus is the Lord and Savior. That was the gospel. And so the early church recognized their teachings as uh, the word of God. There were scribes that recorded their teachings, and then they circulated this teaching around the church. And the teachings of the apostles in the New Testament and the prophets of the Old Testament became the foundation of the church. These became the teachings that transformed the church's life and transformed uh, uh, the, the communities around them and provided all this explosive growth that you see in the book of Acts and you see throughout church history. Well, as they died, their teachings were collected and they were uh, recognized as the rule or canon. That's where we get the term canon, the canon of the Bible. They're recognized as the rule or canon by the Christian church. By the end of the first century, all of the gospels, all the New Testament had been written. And in the second and third century, we see the canon take shape and the Christian leaders recognize this and say, yes, this is the word of God. This is our rule. This is our, these are our scriptures. And today, we have the teachings of the apostles and the prophets here in our Bibles. So we have to ask ourselves, why did they devote themselves to this teaching? And why should we devote ourselves to this teaching as well? Well, let me give you three reasons why I think they did it and why we should do it as well. The first reason is this. Uh, When we devote ourselves to the scriptures, we find truth. When we devote ourselves to the scriptures, we find truth. Peter preaches the gospel in Acts 2, right? And then he gets to the end of the sermon, and then what does Luke tell us about the people? What does he say? He says that they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. God used the preaching of the gospel to penetrate their hearts. Now, think about this. You can only be cut by something that is harder than you, right? A knife can cut you because it's harder than you, and it's been sharpened to penetrate you. You can't be cut by Play-Doh, can you, kids? Kids, have you ever tried to make a Play-Doh knife? I bet Miles Stevenson has made a Play-Doh knife in his life and tried to cut himself. Could you cut yourself with a Play-Doh knife? No, why? Because it's softer than you. It's mushy. The truth of Christianity can cut you because it's harder than you. Because it's not just truth with a lowercase t, it's capital T truth. It's ultimate truth. Now, we don't like to talk about truth in our culture as ultimate truth. We like to talk about truth as relative, right? I've got my truth, you've got your truth, we've got our truth now. They had their truth back in the day. Right? Truth is relative. Some truths work during the Bible time. Some work now. Some work for you. Some work for me. Who really knows what's true? And we base truth on our feelings. Whatever feels good becomes the arbiter of truth. Now, what is wrong 
with this subjective, mushy, Plato truth. What's wrong with that? What changes? What happens if you build your life on mushy truth? What would happen if you built your life on Plato? When things change, what is going to happen to the foundation of your life? It's going to crumble. Jesus says, whoever builds his life on the word of God builds his life on the rock. And nothing can ever shake it. But whoever builds his life on the sand, their house will crumble. Jesus gives us truth. He gives us truth of the capital T that we can build our life on. And so we devote ourselves to the scriptures because in there we find truth because in there we find the second reason, which is God. We devote ourselves to the scripture because we find God in it. So everyone can know that God exists through creation. God has revealed his attributes through his creation. We call that general revelation, right? However, the scriptures show us how we can have a relationship with God through the person and work of Jesus. We call this special revelation. The scriptures are the map that help us find God and engage in a relationship with him. Uh, This weekend, my family and I, we went to Roaring River, Missouri uh, to go camping. This was our camping experiment to see if we actually like camping. Kids have been asking us, let's go camping. We want to go camping. We're like, do you actually like camping? Let's go try tonight. So we went to Roaring River to go camping. It was a success. We had a good time. We even caught a few fish. Yay. To get to Roaring River, we had to have a map. Now, I guess we could have set out for Roaring River and I could have just started driving towards Southwest Missouri. But if I had done that, we would probably still be lost and I wouldn't be here this morning and I would get fired and that would be bad. So what did we do? We pulled up the location on the GPS on my iPhone. And we, whenever I I saw the location on my phone, I said, oh, there's Roaring River. Now I'm going to follow the map to get to Roaring River. But I didn't actually get to Roaring River until I followed the map. So if I'm looking at it on my screen, that's not the real thing. But it shows me how to get to the real thing. Right? I think there's something similar there happening whenever we look at Scripture. The Scriptures aren't the real thing, but they show, they're not God, but they show us how to get to God. The Scriptures are the map that help us find Him. If we want to know God in a real, personal, and powerful way, then we devote ourselves to the scriptures. The scriptures are powerful because they're not just men writing about God. It's because God himself actually wrote them. Uh, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1 that uh, no prophecy was written by the will of man, but men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed, right? The scriptures are powerful because they're not ultimately man's word about God, but they're God's word to man. And the Holy Spirit works by and with the scriptures to lead us to God. And as we find God, then we find life. That's the last reason we devote ourselves to scripture. We devote ourselves to scripture because in them we find life. Uh, In John 6, There's a very interesting story from the life of Jesus, okay? So Jesus feeds 5,000 people miraculously, okay? 
Now, if I fed 5,000 people miraculously, what do you think would happen the next day? People would come back and want more food. And that's what happened whenever Jesus fed them, right? They came back the next day and they wanted more food. And Jesus, being the good teacher that he was, used this as an object lesson. He said, you know what? You guys had your fill of the loaves. You're here because you had the fill of the loaves. But if you're really thinking, you would come here and you would ask for bread that never perishes. Bread that satisfies. So like, well, of course, give us this bread. And so Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. And whoever believes in me will never thirst. Whoever believes in me shall have eternal life. And then he gets really crazy and he says, I'm the bread from heaven. If anyone eats my bread, he will live forever. My bread, by the way, is my flesh. Crazy. Unless you eat the flesh of the son of man. Now he's saying I'm the son of man. I'm God. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no life in you. What a bizarre sermon. It was just as bizarre to them as it would be to us today. And guess what happened? He preached his crowd from 5,000 to 12. All of them left except for the 12 disciples. And all the preachers said, amen. Thank you, Jesus. We all look at this passage when we preach a bad sermon or when people leave the church. and like, oh, it happened to Jesus too. It's okay. So Jesus preaches this sermon. Everybody leaves except for the 12. Jesus looks at the 12 and says, well, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. When we devote ourselves to the scriptures, we find Jesus. And when we feed on him and faith, we find eternal life. God uses ordinary devotion to scripture to produce spiritual life in us. Have you ever seen that in your life? Have you ever seen how uh, devoting yourself to scripture, uh, especially devoting yourself into a community of people who are devoted to scriptures, that God has used that in an extraordinary way to bring life to you? Uh, I've experienced this um, several times in my life, but uh, a really poignant time, probably maybe the first time, was when I was in college. Uh, I became a Christian in high school. But whenever I went to college, it was the first time that I really felt like I was in a Christian community where we were devoting ourselves to Scripture together. I had a small group of friends, and we would meet every week to, to read the Bible, to study it, to memorize Scripture, and to hold each other accountable for actually living out uh, the teachings in our everyday life. And in those meetings, nothing extraordinary happened on the surface. Nothing extraordinary happened on the surface. We were doing very ordinary things, but God used them in an extraordinary way to bring life to me. I found uh, forgiveness for my sins. I found freedom from shame and guilt. I found joy and peace and fellowship like never before. I grew tremendously, and we grew together. Uh, we all began doing life together. God used this ordinary devotion to his word to bring spiritual life to me and my community. Has that ever happened for you? I would hope 
that grace and peace would be a place where you find spiritual life through the devotion to these ordinary means of grace is what we call them. These these ordinary spiritual practices. We're going to devote ourselves to uh, the fellowship with each other, both here and in our community groups. We're going to devote ourselves to uh, the breaking of bread and the prayers. We're about to have communion. And we're going to devote ourselves to Scripture. And the Lord is going to use that to bring life. Because that's what we see here in the rest of this passage. I know you're thinking, oh no, he's only on the second point. It's okay. I planned for this. The second thing we see is the extraordinary signs of spiritual life in verses 43 through 47. So if you look back to what happened here after you know, Luke gives us that summary statement of what they devoted themselves, look at what you see. You see that awe came upon every soul. You see that the Spirit united them in faith and friendship. They shared their resources. They worshiped together. They ate together. They glorified God together. They experienced joy and gladness together. And they drew others into their fellowship. I loved how when, when we finished that song, Charlie, you had, a, you had one of the little guys in the back said, yay, it was awesome. And the rest of us just sat there. <laughs> what were we thinking? Right? He, he was spiritually alive. He was engaged with the music. He was doing, he was singing these ordinary songs written by ordinary people played by an incredible guitarist and musicians. And he celebrated. That's, those are the signs of spiritual life. And one thing is interesting is in this description, we see these signs of spiritual life and we see them across different Christian denominations. Right? If you look at the Presbyterian church, what do you see? They devote themselves to the apostles' teachings. There's teaching. If you look at uh, the charismatic church, what do you see? You see dynamic worship. If you look at uh, mainline denominations, you see them serving the poor. If you look at Baptists, you see evangelism. If you look at house churches, you see intimate community and fellowship. Here in this passage, we see the ideal, not in denomination, but in the community of God, we see all those things present. Because there was spiritual life in their community, and it was bringing all this life out for people to see. These are all signs of spiritual life in the church. Uh, my wife and I have three kids. We've had them all by C-section. And in the, the first two, I remember, uh, they would take her back. They would do everything. And I think they would have the, the, they would go ahead and take the baby out and then they would bring me in so that I could see the baby. And so I didn't really actually hear or see the baby coming out. Well, on the third C-section, I was friends with the doctor. So I got to go back during the process. And so they have, it's me and Sherry and they have a big curtain up so that you can't see what's going on back here. And as I sat and talked with Sherry, of course, where there's fear, there's anticipation, you're holding your breath, you're anxious, you're wondering like, when is the baby going to come out? And so then the doctor, eventually the doctor says, okay, here comes the baby. And what do we do? We waited for the cry. And eventually you heard the cry, ah, Francis comes out. She cries. What is that cry? That cry is a sign of life. She had a pulse. She had breath. She had life in her. And I got to go back and and they put her on the scale and they weighed her. What What we're seeing here in this passage is signs of spiritual life in the church. We have to ask ourselves, do we see these signs of spiritual life in us? 
Do we see awe or reverence? Um, Do we see discipleship and evangelism? Do we see passionate worship? Do we see intimate fellowship? These are the signs of life we want to see in our church and in our lives and in the Christian community everywhere. But they don't come They don't come by pursuing the signs and the wonders and the extraordinary things. They come through these ordinary practices that the early church used. They come through devoting ourselves to scripture, to fellowship, to communion, and to prayer. God uses them to give us spiritual life, and he uses them to give life to others. Notice it says, The Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. God used this community to do evangelism. Notice they weren't doing evangelism, right? They were just being Christians. They they were just uh, experiencing the spiritual life of being united to Jesus and being united to his people, and that drew people in. What does it mean to be saved? It says they were saved. Well, when you're saved, what does Jesus tell us in John 3? You're reborn. You're born again. You're born into a new family. You're born into God's family, a family that's free from the guilt and shame of sin, a family that's free from the punishment and power of sin, a family that's united to God and each other through the Spirit, a family that's radically generous, intimately connected, and overwhelmingly joyful. That, it's the ideal life. It's the life in the ideal family. It's, it's, it's a life of knowing the truth and knowing God and knowing life through Jesus. It's a life that all those who repent and come to Jesus in faith get to experience. It is true life. And it revolutionized the early church. Uh, so much so that there was a second century philosopher an opponent of Christianity. He, this is the opponent. His name was Celsus. And this is what he said of the Christian community. He said, see how they love one another. See how they want, love one another. Friends, the best evangelism we could do is to love each other well through the gospel. Man, what, what if people were to say, see how grace and peace loves one another? Uh, I actually got to experience this firsthand once. Uh, I was at uh, General Assembly. General Assembly is our national uh, church gathering where all the, church, all the PCA churches come from all over the country uh, to, to worship and do the business of the church there. And it's a great time. It's a great time of reunion and fellowship uh, of, of different pastors. And, and one night we all got together and we hadn't seen each other in months and we went to this restaurant, and we had a great meal together. It was, it was a seafood meal, and we brought out all the lobster and crab. Like, it kind of went all out, right? And we spent hours eating and drinking and talking and celebrating each, with each other, reminiscing, telling stories, hugging, laughing, crying. Just, just It was such a great time. And uh, as we got up to leave, uh, one of my other friends was talking with the waitress, probably about the ticket, probably put it on him, right? It's like, it's probably Ricky, my friend Ricky. was like, hey, Ricky, why don't you pay this? I don't know. But uh, I think it was Ricky was talking to the waitress. And uh, she said, um, I have never seen people eat like that together before. Who are you? And he said, well, we're a, we're a group of Christian ministers that haven't seen each other in a while. And so this is like a reunion for us to get back together and share in this fellowship. And she said, I knew it. 
I knew you guys were Christians because of the joy that you had at your table. Were we being evangelistic? Were we trying to do evangelism? No, we were just experiencing life in community together. And God used it to spread the joy of the gospel. God uses these ordinary practices of spiritual life to bring extraordinary spiritual life to others. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go to God and we're going to confess our sins and we're going to ask him to help us believe the gospel and pray that he would produce that kind of spiritual life in us. So let's pray together.